and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith back once again with another episode of Cinema, and it's brought to you, as always, by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. I've been running this limited series uh, for cinema with my own personal path to cinema and, and learning to recognize it and, and most of all avoiding it throughout my career and throughout my life. And, and I thought I would go back all the way to when I was a kid. And in the previous two episodes, I, I looked at uh, acquiring for the very first time, uh, you know, a Super 8 silent movie camera, Kodak camera, and starting down the road into making movies. And, and it was Jaws, as I had mentioned in, in the first episode of this subseries, that uh, inspired me to to want to make movies. And where we left off last time, I was talking about my first, and I put in quotes, feature film, which was an adaptation or a remake of the animated 1967 Mad Monster Party. I was going to make a live action. And uh, if you go back and listen to that, I also incorporated uh, some voice sound bites uh, from, from my actual reading teacher from eighth grade that I had recorded years and years ago. Uh, to to make her in there, to to put her in there. So I was really proud of that. And you're going to be hearing some sound bites today from some of the kids who were affiliated with the development of of the character that that made me famous in middle school and high school with my films. And they became kind of a thing that people wanted uh, to be part of. It was kind of cool to be part of one of uh, Bruce. You know, I'm Harrison now, but Bruce's films. And uh, it was all started with Spedwoman. I guess I sort of had mixed feelings about Spedwoman. I never really voiced him, but Sped was sort of a, a short for special ed, right? That's not sort of mean, but we were young, foolish. <laughs> Episode one of this subseries covered the development of this character. I was inspired by Benny Hill and Wondergran, one of the characters on his uh, small little fast flicks, as I like to call them. And so I had this comic character that really was the embodiment of mediocrity. There was really nothing clever about it. It wasn't all that well drawn. Uh, I never fancied myself as an artist. I just could draw, I guess, better than some kids maybe. And I loved art class and all of that, but by no means would a, a future in graphic design be, be you know something for me. And uh, I got some pushback on this. As I explained, uh, Spedwoman was considered kind of an embarrassment by a girl that I was dating at the time. And uh, she just thought, number one, it was silly. She thought that the whole name was offensive because, as I had laid out before, that Spedwoman uh, was uh, an acronym, really, for uh, SPED, which in our school was special education and, of course, the negative connotations that go with that. And I'm not proud of that. What I'm saying is, is you know, I was, what, 12, 13 at the time, and I was a stupid kid, and we just thought it was funny. It was just a nerdy, geeky sort of thing in a blue dress. I tried to avoid it as much as I could. But it caught on. It even caught on to the fact that my eighth grade math teacher allowed me to make a bulletin board with my buddy, and we put it up, and it said something like, Spedwoman loves you. What this had to do with math and algebra, I, I don't know. 
but it was eighth grade. And uh, I remember she was so upset. My girlfriend was so upset by this. She was going to break up with me that that bulletin board went up. And it almost seemed like a, a thing that I wanted to do to just keep rankling her about it. And I had just walked in from gym or something, I don't know. And some sort of sped woman display was going up. And my heart just fell at that moment. I knew that I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't deal with someone wanting someone that bad, something that badly, instead of wanting me solely. The whole reason that I resented it is that I couldn't understand why anyone would find it funny. And I, it took me years to find it even the slightest bit amusing. So now what do you do? I mean, how do you bring this to life? And most of all, how do you make it any good? And, and the answer is you really don't. You just kind of push forward and you make it. And that was the theme of, of the first episode of this, this uh, sub-series. And that is just get out there and, and, and freaking make something. And that's what I was doing. I, I can't say that this was high cinema. I can't say I was Steven Spielberg blowing up model trains and, and making something truly cinematically spectacular. But living in a small town in the Poconos, eh, it was probably more than what most people were doing. Now that is already a sign of cinema. My goal really was to entertain, so we had to find an outfit that resembled the comic character. You know, a comic character that really only a handful of kids really knew, so it's it's not like the rest of the world was waiting to see how this comic character would be adapted to live screen. And my mom had this old house dress from the 70s. It was like uh, royal blue, and it had this fuzzy collar and fuzzy cuffs, like really just, I guess, bad cotton, you know, kind of thing, or wool. And my mom, to the day, I swear, till the day she died, denied that she ever had that. It was hers. We got it out of an old wardrobe. It was definitely hers. And I have pictures of this. And you are going to see a link. I posted a link in my show notes uh, to these episodes that you can watch. And uh, yeah, that blue house dress definitely was uh, my mom's. Now, we did some test uh, shots because Spedwoman had this really white frizzy hair, like almost like a, a white old lady afro. And uh, we bought a wig at some Halloween shop or up in the mall somewhere. And we put it on my brother. And, and the problem was, number one, the wig kept flying off because there was a lot of action. Sped woman had to run around. She had to fly on a bike and jump on cars. And the wig just kept popping off. No matter how many bobby pins we put in it, the wig was sliding and his brown hair underneath was showing and I forget how it happened, but somehow we found an old Paps blue ribbon hat. It was like a Gilligan hat kind of thing. And uh, that seemed to work. So we slapped that on my brother and that damn hat, it was like Indiana Jones. That freaking thing never came off unless you took it off. And that became Spedwoman's outfit. And here's the best part. I still have the original wardrobe to this day. It's in my basement, packed in a box. And I always said one day, It'll be in the Smithsonian, you know, right alongside Indiana Jones's hat, jacket, and whip, or Judy Garland's slippers, but dare to dream. So we found the outfit. And then the goal was is to truly entertain. The plots were stupid. The plots were simple. Spedwoman finds bad guys. Bad guys beat up Spedwoman. Spedwoman comes back and saves the day. And in between, there would be a lot of fast motion, really quick scenes, you know, for comic relief. And even a few special effects. At first, I tried to use uh, Christmas tree garland to, to look like lasers coming out of her hand. And it just looked really bad. 
So I, I just figured out how to do lasers by animating each frame with a needle. And I had a, an old Mickey Mouse light board and I would lay the film out and I had a magnifying glass and I would look at the frame and I would scratch looking to where my brother's hands were and starting the dot there in each frame, the dot would become longer and longer and longer into a straight line. And that's how I created my lasers. And one, I swear it took like two hours to do five seconds of lasers, but we got lasers. Now here's the catch. The whole thing was silent. That was the problem. So you had to rely heavily like a Buster Keaton or a Har you know, Harold Lloyd kind of movie that it just had to be silent. You had to rely on the visuals. So Spedwoman started out as a visual medium with no reliance on sound effects. It was only around the middle of my junior year in high school that the video revolution was starting. And we're going to get into that. That's the episode for today. And I had a buddy who I swear in my eyes was a genius. This guy was an electronics, a computer genius before computers were even doing anything. When we were still running Apple II C's in our computer classroom, this guy was way ahead of the curve. And he said to me one time, he said, listen, we have a video camera at my house in my dad's basement. And, you know, we can take your movies and we can transfer them over to video and add sound. And I was like, what is this sorcery? I would love to understand this. So one night I went over to his house. I drove to his house, brought my films, brought my projector. We shot them up on a wall. He set up a video camera and he recorded them. And they ended up on VHS tape. And I thought, this is amazing. Now I can pop them in a VCR and show them. But wait, there's more. Lee understood sound. And he had a portable video deck, I remember, that also had audio dubbing. You could take a microphone or an inline and plug it into this VCR and add your own sound and music. And it had two channels. I mean, I know all of you sitting there going, ooh, that's amazing. In 1983, it is pretty freaking amazing. And we would sit in his basement and I added all the voices. I did all the, they, they were very cartoonish voices like, oh, sped woman. And, and I was doing that kind of stuff. Lee was adding sound effects. He had a two by four that he would hit this big mayonnaise jar with. It was like a plastic jar and it would go doing. So when, you know, that was an impact sound when somebody got punched or hit on the head with something and the sound just changed everything. Now I really had Benny Hill movies and now I could show them in school without before. I mean, I'm not kidding you. I used to haul this movie projector in this silent super eight movie projector, draw the shades in like my English or study hall classroom and put these up on the screen and they were just silent. All you heard was the projector sound. Now I could take a VHS tape, pop it into any VCR on those carts and in 25 inch luxurious color and sound, my friends could watch and they were a hit. Suddenly I had people asking, could I be in one of those? Could I be in a sped woman movie? And the best part was my senior year, we had a Japanese foreign exchange student. His name was Aki and Aki loved these things. And he asked me, could I be in sped woman movie? absolutely dude you can be in a sped woman movie and we put him in and of course racially motivated we named him bonsai and you know our one villain who i my one of my best friends and my vice president 
in, in my junior and senior year. Uh, he was Japanese American and he was Emperor Ninja, of course. So yeah, we, we hit all the lowest common denominator levels, which by today's standards is, you know, uh, cultural appropriation and racial and racist and, and everything offensive. But at the time it was 1983. So nobody really gave a shit. So we ended up making these things and they turned into a series. I mean, one became two, two became five, and they they just kept moving forward. And I ended up entering them on uh, some contests for our local TV uh, channel, a cable channel. I won. And, you know, the truth be told, I was probably one of the only people to enter this stupid thing. But they loved them so much and they laughed so hard at them, they actually chopped them up to make them like a series instead of just showing them all in one clip. And they started airing on our local cable network to the point where my mom said she was going home from work one night and her coworker said, oh, I got to get my kid off the bus. She watches this stupid show at four o'clock on TV 13 with this guy running around in this blue dress. It's some of the stupidest shit I've ever seen. And my mom goes, well, that's, that's my son. I remember we were shooting one episode up in our local mall. And at that time, you didn't need any permission. I just walked into the mall with these kids dressed in these goofy outfits, my brother in this dress. And we started shooting and the security guards got in on the act. They didn't even give us any crap about it. They were like, oh yeah, we'd love to be in a movie. And they knew of these things from the local cable channel. And I remember we were taking a break in one of the mall restaurants. And it was a restaurant that actually a a high school friend or father owned. And we were taking a lunch break in there. My brother is sitting in the outfit and this woman looks at him and she goes, are you supposed to be somebody I'm supposed to know? And my brother holding a glass of milk already had the Hollywood attitude. And he looked at her and he goes, lady, don't you know who I am? She goes, no. He goes, lady, I'm Spedwoman. The the film's caught on. And herein lies the problem. I got very comfortable in this and I got very relaxed And I was just kind of riding on this. And I I wasn't doing anything to really expand my horizons. And and as I had said, the the video revolution was just starting to take off in the way that uh, consumer products were now allowing people to have portable recorders, uh, portable cameras, and you could start really doing something different. So here's my first bout with cinema, and that is I... I just kept doing the same thing. And as I was starting to head for college, even in my senior year, I should have been doing more. I really should have been creating and writing better scripts and doing something dramatic or or even a really ultra low budget horror on this newfound video technology. Now, I didn't have the money for for this equipment. I mean, we're talking it was thousands at the time to get a, a portable VCR, which was broken into two pieces. They were... Uh, They were kind of blocks and you could take the portable part with you and hook a camera up and go to sporting events and things like that. Then come back and attach it to like the tuner part where it would play to your TV. There was there were very few places in town to get this kind of stuff. There was no Best Buy. There was no Circuit City or or any of those kind of things. So you had the local vendors, the local stores, merchants who sold electronic equipment And it was always through the nose. I remember there was now a defunct company called Video Jones. And I used to, they used to rent videotapes as well. They were for a while, the only one in town that did it. And they used to have this cool display with like rope lights and black, 
you know, displays of cameras. And I used to go in there, it was like Ralphie in a Christmas story looking at the BB gun through the window. And I would just stand there and dream and fantasize about having uh, this equipment. But it was way beyond my reach. And I even at, at 16, God bless my heart, was looking into trying to finance uh, some of this equipment or even rent it. And uh, the, the prices were just prohibitive. I did have my friend, though, who offered me and said, listen, you want to make movies, you can borrow my dad's camera. You can borrow the equipment, you know, the, the deck, the ported deck. And I never did. And that's a big mistake because... At that time, I could have really been building up one hell of a video portfolio, even if it wasn't all that great, but it would have been more than my brother running around in my mother's old house coat, uh, beating up cartoon characters really is what it was. And that I think is probably my first biggest professional regret. I mean, I look now at, at what some people are doing just on their iPhones, and some of these people are, are 14, 15, and I think that was me. And I, I look at the technology that is available to kids now. And I'm not that old yet where I should be you know, thinking like I walked uphill both ways in snow, but my God, have things changed since I was a kid. If I would have had access to the stuff that now I can just generate lasers with a push of a button and, and really, you know, Hollywood level type of lasers, not crappy scratching the film with a needle lasers and doing my own sound effects for lasers. You know, I used to do this. I hum and I, I whistle. I can't even do it well right now in front of this microphone, but that was my laser sound. And if you watch those uh, links that I, I provide in, in the show notes, you'll hear me. That's me doing the laser sounds. And only later did I steal the laser sound from 1984's Supergirl and put those in to replace me doing the humming whistling sound. That's what I was working with. But I was also on the cusp of really seeing some incredible new technology and I really should have been embracing it. Even though these films made me incredibly popular in high school and I was already the, the class president and raising money for my class and doing all kinds of unorthodox fundraisers, if you will call them, to get that job done, the movies did help raise my profile. I was staying comfortable and inside my bubble and I really was not pushing myself creatively or professionally. And the worst part was, is that college was on the horizon. Now, at this time, not many film schools. I wanted to go for film. Uh, where am I going to go? And I finally decided on Penn State, and I applied, and I got accepted to main campus, and I also got accepted to the Hazleton campus. I chose the Hazleton campus. And why? Because it was more comfortable. I was afraid of going out to the main campus where I would just become a number. I was a big fish in a very small pond in my town. People knew my work, they knew of Spedwoman, they knew I was the movie guy. If I go out to Penn State main campus with, you know, 20,000 kids, I'm nobody. And I didn't want that. And I was already riding high, I was the class president, I was well known, and I was popular, and I didn't want to lose that. Big, big mistake. I was 17. So I finally chose uh, Penn State Hazleton, I was accepted. I had nothing to show other than these Spedwoman movies. I didn't have anything. I remember I tried shooting some thriller or suspense horror kind of thing with, with my brother and, 
and a friend of mine and they were supposed to play a married couple. There's there's nothing worse than seeing somebody that's like 13 years old trying to play a 35 year old or something. It was it was just really bad. Uh, the editing was horrible. It, it oh my god, I, I look back and it's just as they would say today, it's just so absolutely cringeworthy. So I'm going to head off to college with really nothing to show for it but a VHS of a handful of Sped Woman movies that really were just me and my friends goofing around. Now, again, to the college crowd that I went up to, they just thought I was a genius. And I I just rolled it over into that. We had a, a landlord who had a, a wife who was a bit of a, a pain in our ass. And so we uh, started a, a kind of new Sped Woman series without my brother, of course, using my college roommates called Betty. And it was just basically Sped Woman all over again, uh, fighting people like the Terminator and Rambo and Freddy Krueger. I'm not really pushing myself. It was the same thing. And I would be able to go back home. Uh, I adapted them. I shot them on film, adapted them to video, would come back after the weekend and enthrall my friends in the apartment building with what we just shot, you know, a couple weeks before. I remember one night it was snowing and we went up to the local Acme store and we shot in there again, asking no permission, just walked in with a camera and just started shooting. I'm not pushing myself. And most of all, I'm at college and I'm not pushing myself educationally or academically as well. Uh, I met a hot cheerleader who lived down the hall, got involved with her, and I, I just was not going to class. I was partying. And I just thought that, you know, hey, I'm the guy who made Sped Woman and all is well. I'm going to be fine. I'm, I'm going to hit it big. I, I'm just waiting for Hollywood to call me. And that was a huge problem, a big problem. While I knew all of my stuff about films, it was not translating academically. And I simply was not showing up to class. My roommate, I remember, would come in my room. This girl is in my bed. And he would say, dude, we're going to class. Are you coming? No, I'm not going up. I'll catch it later. I'll go tomorrow. That kind of attitude. And I was already experiencing a kind of personal cinema right there. I was killing my future and I didn't realize it. And I'm going to make it very clear on this podcast for anybody that's far younger than me that's listening and you might happen to be in school right now in college, go to class. I am telling you every single day I think about screwing up my first round of college at Penn State. My God, if I had just gone to class, how much better would things have been? And I get people that argue, well, Penn State isn't really known for its film program. Really, how much better would you have been? You might have just ended up going off to teach it somewhere at a community college. And you know what? Maybe. We'll, We'll never know. That's the catch. But I knew in my heart of hearts, I was not pushing myself. And I knew deep inside, I really didn't have much to show for it. So the first semester was really nothing more than than a party semester for me. And I wasn't going to class and I wasn't doing all the proper things. And I was messing with this cheerleader and, you know, having movie nights and all that stuff and, and acting like I was a big shot. And then it came time for the reckoning. And that is grade time. And at the end of the semester, we had to do a paper in English Uh, and it was to define a word as deeply and as detailed as you can and the word I picked out of a hat was the word bad and I'm telling you it was probably the hardest I ever worked in in that first semester of college for this English professor 
and I wrote, and I kid you not, a 16-page paper complete with footnotes defining the word bad to the point where it just probably couldn't be defined any further and broken down. Footnotes, the whole thing, I thought it was a work of art. Again, I'm Ralphie from A Christmas Story with my theme. It's going to be an A++++++ all around the room. And I walked in and I took that paper and I dropped it off and the professor looked at me and goes, Mr. Smith, nice to see you because I had not been in class. I mean, I think maybe I came to class three times, two, three times. And what I would do is they gave out syllabi in the beginning of, of the semester and I just looked at when the tests were and I would just show up for the tests. That's what I was doing. I wasn't really coming for the content and for the learning. I would show up, take the tests, and it was, I thought, which I was, according to the test, I was pulling like, you know, a B, low A. And the guy said, uh, you have a good paper there? I said, yes, sir. I said, I think it's a great paper. I said, I think you're really going to like it. He goes, that's terrific to hear because I'm failing you. And I was like, what? You can't fail me. I have like a B or an A in this class. He goes, oh, no, you don't. He goes, you see... You didn't read the syllabus all the way. You may have read the dates and the schedule, but you didn't read the disclaimer about if you miss more than three days of my class without a doctor's excuse, it's an automatic failure. Boom, he got me. And I remember him looking at me saying, have a great holiday. I found out that I stepped on this landmine with a number of other of my professors. And that year, that first semester, I came home with a one Point one and was automatically on academic probation. Now, what the hell do I do? I, I mean, I was thinking I'll make it up in the second semester. I'll do a comeback, but my heart wasn't in it. And I really didn't want to do it. And I had just broken up with the cheerleader. What did I really have up there? And most of all, my friends were all getting ready to head out in the following semester. They were going to go to main campus. And now with a 1.1, I'm not getting accepted to main campus, so I'm done. And I decided, I guess I really got to make a big change. And the cliffhanger for this episode is, is that by 1986, I knew I had to head to California. So Psycho 3 was getting ready to open, and it was the winter before it opened, and I made a phone call out to Universal Studios. And that phone call changed the entire course of my life. We'll get into that in episode four of this sub-series. So hope you found this interesting. Expand your horizons. Don't be content to be the big fish in the small pond. This is Harrison Smith with yet another episode of Cinema, wishing you well wherever you are in the world, and I look forward to continuing this story next week. Thank you. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.